0: This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And
1: I'm Alex Entner. We usually, on this podcast, look at inside the U.S. That's generally been our focus. But this week, we're going to turn our eyes to outside the U.S. and the importance of international audiences to media industries and some of the struggles they have when looking for that international audience. So, Amanda... Globalization is discussed a lot in relation to politics these days, but what's been happening in the media industries?
0: Indeed, there's all sorts of attention to this question of globalization um, and shifting of jobs and trade, both of labor and of goods, and to some degree, the media industries are part of this as well. I mean, I think the important thing to understand is that as a reality, globalization is not new. Uh, but when we're talking about the media industries and the and processes related to globalization there, what we're really talking about is a wave that's largely taken place since the 1980s. Um, and it's been very much connected to changing communication technologies, which, again, isn't to say there wasn't a pursuit of global audience before then, just that the shift in technologies – certainly the made internet. the global, yes, the internet, um, made global audiences increasingly accessible um, and an important part of the business. And so we can't cover this as a topic in its entirety in, in one podcast this week. But what I thought might be helpful is to take a look at some cases.
1: What are the some of the ways that globalization has affected the media businesses?
0: Well, we can see it in many different ways. In one, I think, the potential of globalization in combination with digitization or internet distribution really creates an international audience because of the ease of distribution, where in the past that was something that would be very costly. Difficult to
1: send a film print overseas.
0: Exactly. When we were literally moving things and goods, whether it was uh, record albums, uh, the process of licensing television shows in different countries to different channels for different periods of time. Mm -hmm. There are all sorts of reasons that led there to be all these kind of time lags between when cultural goods were available in some places and when they were available in others. And it's
1: it's a time lag that still exists in some cases. It is. It certainly
0: is because that time time, like, wasn't just about technology, but also about business practices. And, and just as those things haven't exactly moved at the same time in the U.S., we're certainly um, seeing that play out in the international market as well, where uh, new distribution technologies make new things possible. But historic arrangements of licensing and uh, known ways of making money, as opposed to potential ways that are less certain, um, have been slowing down some of that
1: change. I mean, it even happens in the US with PBS and Downton Abbey and well not I was about to say Sherlock but not Sherlock but P- Downton Abbey the great British baking show and a couple of other things where they don't care about timeliness
0: right and and it also must be noted just from the outset that We're going to talk about mostly U.S. exports and how U.S. content travels around the globe. Um, And I don't mean to make it sound like that's the most important content. It has been the case around the world that cultural specificity reigns. People in any market prefer to see the content uh, produced in their home location and about people that are most like them. Um, However, the wealth and size of the U.S. market have really given it an advantage in terms of global distribution. Historically, what this has meant is that the U.S. audiovisual industries, I'm thinking mainly today about television and film, that they've been able to make back their costs domestically. Because, again, think about the broad size of the U.S. population and whether or not we think of ourselves that way. We are a pretty wealthy nation.
1: And we are the top film market, at least, and probably the top television market as well.
0: Right. And so that has allowed the U.S. to used the international market primarily just for profits. It, it wasn't part of making back costs. And this has meant all kinds of strategies. Uh, historically, in television, this meant that y- the U.S. studios were able to really undercut local production in other countries because anything they made was profit. Um, and so uh, as a result, they were selling old U.S. shows at a price that was much lower than it would cost to make shows in in other countries. And for a long time, that uh, made it difficult to amass the funding in in other countries to make original programming. That's not the case now. there is so there is this uh, historical complexity. But the one thing that has changed a lot in in recent years that has led to some of the shifts in strategies is that the U.S. market, um, largely because of the way that it's fragmenting and because of the increased budgets for both television and film...
1: Especially film. Right. That the U.S.
0: market doesn't cover the costs of production anymore. And increasingly, to talk about film, um, all of that money that the studios were making in the 80s and 90s from DVD... um, is now replaced by global box office and, and the receipts that, that come in from abroad. And so that changes the, the nature of these, these industries, because all of a sudden, they're not just thinking about what works in America, um, but they're approaching creative production with the recognition that they need to be making content for a global audience.
1: Yeah, one of the big stories of the film industry has been the importance of that global market. But we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Let's focus on TV. And the idea of a global television network. Right.
0: That's something that historically was impossible or you know, just not how television was organized as, as a medium that was first broadcast. This history is actually kind of fascinating when you think about like, the way in which technology doesn't always follow our rules, right? <laughs> and so broadcast waves, they travel past national boundaries. Um, ask any Canadian. Um, <laughs> So no, um, so even though um, waves could travel beyond national boundaries... The television business has been very built on nation states. Um, this is how rights are sold in different places. They're uh, sold by country. They're sold by country. In some cases, region, um, in you know clumps of countries that are close to each other, um, and you know that was about the fact that often these deals were exclusive. One network had the rights to Dallas for a period of time, and and the international distributor you know, sort of cobbled together a patchwork of distribution deals, trying to put it in as many places as possible
1: for as much money as they possibly can make.
0: Exactly. Uh, but technologically, and now in terms of businesses like Amazon and Netflix, we have these companies that aren't bound to national boundaries in quite the same way and that are seeking to develop a subscriber base in multiple countries. Uh, and so that that really is a, a new distribution possibility for television.
1: And I think I want to make it clear here, these are subscriber bases across multiple countries in, a sing, uh, in, if not a sing, singular infrastructure, then something that looks a lot like a singular infrastructure with, like, Netflix being one main entity.
0: Right, that's a good point. Um, and I think, actually, we're probably going to see, as we've seen many different stages of Netflix as a company at this point, like, right now, it is very important to understand that Netflix Germany is not the same as Netflix U.S., is mm-hmm. not the same as Netflix Spain.
1: As I learned when I traveled internationally and found all kinds of new things on Netflix it's, it's in other fascinating. countries. For
0: the most part, um, many people in those countries are very grumpy that the U.S. library tends to be larger. Although
1: um, U.S. people are grumpy that international Netflix has things that they don't.
0: Exactly. The grass is always greener, apparently. <laughs> and I think, actually, that is a phenomenon that's probably will fade in time especially as Netflix and Amazon build more original content. And I think anything that is a Netflix original now, the deals are global rights. Um, and so I think in, in some ways we will see more commonality in the libraries over time. But in terms of some of the historical deals um, and the, the deals that are for licensing content not original to Netflix, uh, choices are being made, probably based on the number of subscribers in different countries. And whether or not someone, another provider already has exclusivity.
1: But something has changed over time over these past few years, no?
0: Yes. Um, and, and so the big change here is internet distribution. As
1: we've been talking right. about. Right, yeah.
0: Um, but, and again, it's not just the technology. The internet's been around for a while now, right? But the 20,
1: 20, 23 years or so, <laughs> something like that, my lifetime.
0: And it's only become an issue in the past few. So it wasn't enough just to have this distribution infrastructure, um, but it took a while for businesses to develop. Uh, and, and then I think the other thing to keep in mind is the nature of video files and their size. Um, and so I think the other, the thing that I don't think we're going to talk a ton about today that certainly is relevant to media businesses and yet outside it is a question uh, related to piracy and, and unauthorized access of all kinds, whether mm-hmm. it's using a VPN to misrepresent where you are in order to Mm -hmm. access a Netflix library other than your own. Well, Um,
1: they don't let you do that anymore, but I admit I have been guilty about using a VPN to get Hulu.
0: I suspect people can still do that, uh, whether they let you or not. But I think the key point here is the way that the possibility of easy piracy has caused these industries to change several practices, one of which, as we were talking about, those cultural lags... The um, day
1: and date release is becoming much more prevalent. Right. So internet distribution isn't following the same practices of international trade?
0: Increasingly, no, um, because you have a single entity that can distribute into multiple countries. Of course, there are big media conglomerates around the world that own channels and networks in multiple countries, but certainly nothing on the scale of Netflix. And so think about, you know, the the power that, that Netflix derives from that kind of access. Uh, so if you own content, you, know, you have the potential, one stop, to really sell it uh, to a wide audience. Like uh,
1: CBS and what they're doing with Star Trek Discovery, or um, Better right. Call Saul is available internationally. I mean, it was in every country I went into in Europe, and
0: those might not be exclusive deals. These might still be on... Star Trek ...terrestrial. Star Trek, Star Trek is. is. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's a... Typically... International television distribution is a labor and person-intensive job um, in terms of building relationships and sort of understanding what content works in each place because it's not all the same. And
1: what content works on what networks in each place because every country has a different set of networks with different fields and different brands.
0: And so we've never had a distribution outlet with the kind of reach that at this point a service such as Netflix has.
1: But what's Netflix' strategy here?
0: That has interested me, and I've been kind of surprised, because historically, media industries have been sort of um, U.S.-centric, and the attitude has sort of been, well, if it plays in the U.S., it'll work anywhere. Um,
1: That's not the case, though.
0: No, uh, but I think in another time, the U.S. was able to get away with that, to Mm -hmm. a degree. But Netflix actually has been strategically developing content for different markets. It's not developing as much as it is for the U.S. market everywhere. And it's Mm -hmm. in something like 170 or 80 countries now. And so I think there seems to be a recognition that you don't make content for the globe, but that the strength of Netflix and its international reach is that it creates an opportunity for content to travel more freely um, than it has historically. And and based here in the U.S., you know, because of the nature of the whole U.S. market, which has been to not be particularly interested in content created elsewhere, people like us who might be interested in something with subtitles from somewhere else, it's just been difficult to ever get that content before. It's rare
1: that something like the returned breaks through and airs on a U.S. network. It, British, British TV is probably the exception. Right, to the
0: um, partly because of language, but even yeah. even that, it tends to be limited. So so instead of Netflix really focusing on a strategy of creating one piece of content that everyone in the world will enjoy, I think they've been strategic in trying to develop for specific countries. And it is certainly not enough, um, but it. At least I'm heartened by the fact that there seems to be uh, an appreciation of the need for uh, country-specific content uh, throughout the Netflix uh, footprint.
1: But let's, let's talk about another global story here that's really interesting. You wrote an article on this topic. What publication was it in?
0: Oh, that was in The Conversation. Okay. It's a chapter from the upcoming book, uh, or drawn from a chapter in... uh,
1: By Amanda's book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's not a book yet. Hang in there. Early 2018. Uh, We now disrupt this broadcast, how cable transformed television and the internet revolutionized it all.
1: But... The, chapter the, the, the topic I'm, is on Game of, Game of Thrones as an international blockbuster.
0: Yes. Uh, and so, you know, this, I think, is an interesting case. Um, it is by no mean the new norm, nor should we look at it as the new norm, but it is an interesting case. Uh, a show that wasn't probably created with this aspiration, right? Uh, it was created for HBO, as many shows are.
1: And it, was, it, it wasn't created with the intent of being a huge hit at the time, I don't think. Right. It was a fantasy show. They were going for fantasy fans.
0: It has, you know, a couple things going for it in terms of a broad audience. As, it's it's uh, not culturally who, who specific. Was... But, you know, Westeros isn't particularly culturally specific, so it doesn't feel like it's based in any one country. Um, and in, in terms of budget, you know, that's one thing that does continue to send, set a lot of U.S. product apart um, is just the amount of, of money that can still be poured into it. So and
1: Game of Thrones, it if, looks if, fantastic. If it's not the most expensive, to something like The Crown, it's up there.
0: Certainly. So how, why is it that I'm claiming Game of, Game of Thrones as the first global blockbuster? Well, because after years of being noted as the most pirated around the globe, um, HBO made it possible for the series to circulate at the same time that it airs here in the U.S. So, in you know, in Australia, it airs early in the morning, and then again at a proper time in, <laughs> in prime time. But for those fans who cannot wait, even a minute, even an hour, uh, they can watch in sync. And so this is an interesting phenomenon. It's not the first and only case of this. Um, It was a a gimmick with um, the 25th anniversary of of Doctor Who. 50th? 50th, yes, sorry.
1: I remember, yeah, I remember the fifty. I reviewed that for the Michigan Daily uh, in my first year there.
0: And so it's it's one thing to do that kind of as a one off. So a couple things, like it's interesting that this can happen, and it can happen now. Um, it's interesting from a business perspective for a number of reasons. You know, how is this possible? Well, a lot of it has to do with HBO as producer and distributor of its own content. It has to do with the fact that there are several HBO networks around the globe. Now, they're not all owned by Time Warner, the company that owns HBO here. Sometimes they're co-owned, sometimes they're merely licensing deals. Um, but in many countries, Game of Thrones airs not on an HBO-branded property at all. Uh, it's Canal Plus in, in France, um, and uh, Sky, in a number of other markets. It's not an easy thing to kind of craft that kind of a deal for simultaneous release. Um, and so I think... Game of Thrones is interesting for the way that the internet was important and...
1: And allowed for it to happen.
0: But it, yet it's not in the way that you'd think. So given our conversation about Netflix and the opportunities that internet distribution provides, it's not that HBO is distributing Game of Thrones by any you know internet um, relationship. But the internet was important here, I think, one, because it created this environment in which... Piracy could be such a significant factor. And Jeff Bukas, the uh, CEO of Time Warner, has has said things like, you know, like, it's, uh, um, we're proud to be the most pirated show. We take it (laughs) as a badge of honor. And, you know, like, yes, that's all real good publicity. But they would much rather that people... Paid for it instead, and more significantly, their partners in all of those other markets that are paying quite a bit to license Game of Thrones—they really want people to be watching well, their version of it. So piracy was a factor, but also—and I think this is this was unexpected—the way that social media and social media and watching television grew up, uh, really just over the run of Game of Thrones, which started in in two thousand eleven, um, and the way in which fans felt that they couldn't avoid spoilers in, in in a very specific series. Now, I mean, of course, there've been web chat rooms about television shows that had massive delays, and that you know, it's not like this is anything new, but this particular show um, and you know, a
1: show it's a show that thrives on the plot twist. It thrives the, on surprising the audience, right? And the
0: unexpected. So there's that piece combined with an environment in which piracy is possible, arguably even easy. So that's that there
1: in- is there a relationship that you're getting at between you know social media and the need to find out now leading people to go and pirate the show? Very much so.
0: And so I think those two pieces, you know, those are both components of our internet connectedness uh, that really fed the need for this kind of simultaneous circulation of this show.
1: But how does that compare with Netflix?
0: Well, that's interesting because we would expect Netflix to be succeeding in this realm. And you know I think the case that I look at um, is is Marco Polo, which in many ways should have or could have been that same kind of of global blockbuster potentially in terms of it it is set somewhere more geographically specific, but so long ago and and you know, I think there's Interest um, in you know these stories of history, and it also had an amazing budget. Um, you know, on that, par. That was a big budget. yeah on, on par, par with Thrones, early yeah. Thrones. Um, and so, so you're sort of thinking about you know you know why didn't that work and why didn't that become a global blockbuster and you know because it was on Netflix as opposed to HBO. Um, the I way didn't. things go wrong actually just in deployment. Or that you,
1: it was a. Bad show?
0: Right. I mean, I think this points to the way in which we can't expect global blockbusters to become a strategy when it's clear that you really can't engineer them. You can take all these pieces that look like they should work, And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. We were talking earlier about a case from film. The Great
1: Uh, Wall with Matt Damon. You know, you would think it it was specifically built with the Chinese market in mind. mm -hmm. You would think a movie with Matt Damon, a big international star that features, you know, a very Chinese story and a very target, very much targeting that audience, would be a hit internationally. And it wasn't. And it ended up being a big loser for Legendary Pictures.
0: Yeah, and I think in shifting to film, you're you're bringing up another point, which is really a different strategy related to the global market, which is targeting specific regions and and the way in which um, we've been in a period recently, where the, the U.S. studios are looking for money, and one of the places that seems to have it and willing to invest, um, or possibly invest, um, have been a number of, of Chinese financiers. And so the question of what that then leads to in terms of cultural products. And so, in, as you exactly point out, sort of this expectation, well, here, this is a story that will work. Um, both markets will love this film. Uh, and again, the way in which there is no, you know, check here, check here. Well, nobody knows. Again, exactly. Nobody still knows.
1: So what are our big takeaways from this conversation here?
0: Well, I think, of course, creating content is difficult. Nobody
1: knows. (laughs) Nobody
0: knows. Creating content in a particular market with known and particular tastes is one thing. I think this idea that these technologies that transcend national boundaries and allow the creation of a global audience... Now, building that global audience just makes all of those challenges even more so. And so, now, I think something like Game of Thrones is an interesting case. Um, I think we have to recognize the way that it kind of, you know, it became something it it wasn't necessarily intended to be and really recognize the difficulty of trying to create a global blockbuster and and the unlikeliness of that. Um, And, you know, I think... Going back to what we've talked about before in terms of Netflix strategy is, is that it's not based on having one thing that you know, the globe might like, but really developing a sophisticated understanding of taste communities that transcend national boundaries and taking advantage of the opportunity to aggregate them. So in some ways, I think there's this parallel to what cable was in the U.S., So before cable, we had just the broadcast networks, and they're generally aimed at a broad audience. What did cable do? Well, cable was able to um, establish a national audience, and so you started to have these brands and these types of content and, and more specific focus espn was sports you can have cnn a news network and so netflix i think has the potential to do a very similar thing on a global scale
1: so target something for one country something for another no, or, no? i'm talking
0: about taste communities oh, okay. right and so the way in which like the, it, con-
1: the term conglomerated niches that you right like to use. so
0: there's who knows exactly how netflix terms it but you know Likes dark dramas about male antiheroes, right? Ozark. <laughs> well, and 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 you we've actually seen these kind of shows coming out of multiple countries. and all of a sudden now it it's far easier for viewers in multiple countries to see these shows that match that very specific mm-hmm. taste preference than than used to be the case. Allison
1: Brie wrestling.
0: There you go. There's
1: glow. On that note, let's move on to the last segment of each and every show, what we're watching this week. Amanda, what are you watching?
0: Alex, I have to admit it's been summer, and I've been traveling, and I am actually stunned by the small amount of television I have been consuming. Um, It has been a a remarkably low-screen August in my home, so I have nothing new to share this time. Really? How, How about you?
1: Well, I've got a couple things I can name. The first is The Carmichael Show. Rest in peace, The Carmichael Show. NBC's multi-camera comedy from Gerard Carmichael about, really, a family. And it's a multi-cam in the vein of All in the Family, or the new One Day at a Time, where they tackle an issue every week, like they tackled President Trump. They had an episode where um, Gerard was in a mall shooting, and it dealt with his experience and his kind of having to wrestle with his being at a shooting and things like that. It's really an excellent show. Very smart, and I'm going to miss it. But I also wanted to promote the fact that I read a book! All right! That doesn't happen all that much with me. Um, I was down the Jersey Shore, and I read a couple of books. The one that's notable is The Magician's King by Lee Grossman. It's the second book in the Magician's Trilogy, which is Harry Potter, but with (laughs) sex and more violence and... (laughs) You know, it, it,
0: grown up Harry Potter.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very well. It's almost like Harry Potter and Narnia kind of melded into one. They he kind of borrows pieces from other fantasy series quite liberally and quite shamelessly. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I liked this second book a lot. I thought it was really smart. It did some really great character development. It kind of uh, they brought in a character and they kind of had to appear a couple of times. And this book actually flushes out. What the hell happened to her in the span between when we saw her at the beginning and when we saw her at the end? Obviously, stuff had went down. <laughs> um, and so it kind of fills in, and it's quite crazy what they did to her, actually. Some of which I'm still not sure I quite like. It involves using sexual assault as a plot device, which very much I have mixed feelings on. But I feel like that's an issue it's for co- another conversation.
0: <laughs> Probably even another podcast, but...
1: So that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. All three of those places have our entire archive of episodes. So if you're yearning for something to listen to as you hit the fall...
0: They're timeless. Yes. Actually, many of them are.
1: Many of them are still relevant today. Yeah. Very much so. And if you happen to subscribe to us on those platforms, please rate and review us. It helps other people find our show. Amanda, where can our listeners find you on Twitter?
0: At DrTVLotz, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z.
1: And you can find me at Alex Zitner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.